Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello again, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, your host, and today we are speaking with Bruce Berglund, author of The Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalization of Sports. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Bob, thanks for having me. Bruce is no stranger to New Books Network as a host and an author who's been interviewed on the network, and he was one of the first uh, guys on the New Books Network. And Bruce has a fascinating resume as an educator and researcher, particularly in Russian and Czechoslovakian history. That includes his 2017 book, Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, which was about the restoration of Prague Castle, and a book that cuts across questions of morality, faith, loyalty, and skepticism. So Bruce, tell us about your personal and professional background. Yeah, so this is, as you mentioned, I have, uh, I'm no stranger to the New Books Network, and uh, I was the inaugural host of uh, New Books and Sports, and this was, uh, boy, back in 2011. So after 10 years, it's uh, great to come back as a, uh, great to come back as a guest. So in terms of my background, I, I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, and I'm someone, I still love winter, I love the cold and snow. And uh, so in writing a book about hockey, that was a homecoming of sorts for me to uh, write about a sport I grew up with. I grew up just a block away from an outdoor outdoor hockey rink. Uh, I like to say that in growing up in Duluth, it was like growing up in a uh, an East European city. It was gray. There were factories that were closed down. Uh, it was just Duluth in the 1970s looked a lot like cities you would see on the news in the Soviet Union or Czechoslovakia or, or Romania. Uh, so I guess, you know, by virtue of the place I grew up, I had this, uh, this draw to the Soviet bloc. Uh, I also was a, um, uh, you know, I, I was a lover of the news. I, you know, I always watched Walter Cronkite. I was always reading Time Magazine and Newsweek and so forth. And so I was just, you know, fascinated by the Cold War, by the Soviet Union and by Eastern Europe. So that was another part of the draw for me that when I went off to school, I was, uh, you know, interested in learning more about these areas. So uh, I studied Russian first uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, at the University of Minnesota. And then as a graduate student, I uh, I continued with Russian, and then I uh, moved over to the Czech language. Uh, I found that uh, Prague is uh, a more enjoyable place to spend my research time than uh, than Moscow. So I've spent uh, most of my career traveling to Prague to do research, um, and uh, I've done work, as you said, on religion and culture in Czechoslovakia during the 1920s and 30s. And uh, my move into sports history, um, you know, you probably heard this story uh, from from academics my age, that when I was going through graduate school, sports history was not really something that, um, uh, it wasn't really regarded as a legitimate area of research. And uh, so uh, even though I was interested in doing something related to sports, I was also interested in other uh, historical questions and topics. Uh, and so after I had gained tenure and, and enough standing in my career, I decided that I wanted to uh, move into doing sports history. And by that time, the field of academic history as a whole had recognized that this was 
uh, an important area of, of social and cultural history. And so, uh, yeah, so doing the book on hockey is something I wouldn't have been able to do early in, earlier in my career, but uh, I was able to build a lot, a lot, build upon a lot of the uh, expertise and knowledge I had gained throughout my career as a historian. And that's true about the, uh, the, uh, concept of uh, or the perception of sports as, as being like uh, I was a sports writer for 30 years and you always have the perception that sports is the toy department and there's nothing serious about it but but as you say sports history is has certainly gone in leaps and bounds as far as academics go yeah there is some terrific terrific work being done now in uh in sports history and uh and I was, you know, a big part of, and I'll have to say this here, you know, being a guest on New Books and Sports, a big part of uh, what went into my book on hockey, the fastest game in the world, comes out of the interviews I had uh, as a podcast host early on. You know, I remember just some fascinating books that I read for the podcast and just engaging with with authors and hearing the lines of research that they did, you know, and uh, uh, so much of my approach in this book, as well as my approach in history in general, came out of those, uh, came out of the books I read for the podcast and the interviews I had with, uh, with authors. Yeah. Well, I know Duluth is cold, but I'm here in Tampa, Florida, which is nice and warm. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also the place where the Stanley Cup happens to be residing, right? This is, this is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you love to get to play the game as well, but uh, why write a book about it? And what fascinated what fascinates you about hockey? Yeah, that's good. Well, you did mention I I do like to play, and I still do play in a in a senior league. Uh, I live I live in a southern Minnesota, and uh, I play in a senior league down here, and. Uh, it's fun now, and, and to illustrate how the sport has changed since when I was a kid when I was playing, um, all of the teams in the league have both men and women playing, so it's, it's really a, a fun dynamic to, uh, to play the game with, with mixed teams, which is you know, completely unlike it was when I was, uh, when I was a kid playing. So uh, you know, what drew me to write about the sport? Um, I was, uh, you know, how to say, I... I was thinking of doing a work on sports history and, uh, you know, and I was initially thinking of something related to Eastern Europe. Uh, but I realized I wanted to move out of my research had been on, uh, Czechoslovakia. I had done a bit of work on Yugoslavia and I wanted to kind of break out of that region and look for something that kind of, uh, crossed, uh, different regional and national boundaries. And all of the courses that I used to teach, I was more of a world historian than an East European historian. And so in teaching that way, in classes of looking at connections across different regions and across different nations, uh, in, in approaching history in a more interdisciplinary fashion, uh, that was the kind of approach I wanted to take for, uh, for my research in sports history. And so uh, Chris Young, who is the editor of the series Sport and World History at the University of California Press, he's actually somebody I interviewed uh, for the podcast way, way back about his book on the 1972 Munich Olympics. And Chris had asked me about doing a book for the series. And uh, the aim of the series is to have specialists in area studies, so people who have language knowledge, people who have experience in archives in particular world regions, 
to have them do a book on some aspect of sports in the particular region they specialize in. And so Chris and I went back and forth in terms of thinking of projects, and, and we were both thinking of something related to Eastern Europe. And I said, you know, people aren't going to really be interested in something specifically related to uh, to East European sports, or I should say it's not going to have a, a very large readership. You know, let's let's think of what we can do on a larger scale. And I I finally thought, hey, why don't why don't I come back to the sport that I had played and loved as a kid and, and a sport I really know well and uh, and do the history of hockey. And uh, so after settling on the on the topic. The next challenge was, um, you know, what do I say that would be that would be fresh, that would be new in terms of looking at the history of hockey? And I didn't want to write a collection of stories about Gordie Howe and Rocket Richard and um, uh, Wayne Gretzky and so forth. I wanted to use hockey as a lens to look at bigger questions about. Uh, about social and cultural and economic history. And, and one of the big issues for me is um, how the game had changed since I was a kid playing on outdoor rinks in, in Duluth, Minnesota. And that's uh, uh, a big part of the approach I take is, is looking at the changes, not only at the international level, not only in terms of the NHL, not only in terms of, of having women play the game, uh, but also how the game is played with uh, with kids and in youth hockey. I should ask what position you played. Uh, I was I'm best at playing defense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm kind of a uh, like I said. I say in the book, I was a short, stocky player, but I made up for it by being slow. And uh, uh, I was I was really actually kind of a bruiser in front of the net and in the corners. And uh, now that I'm playing senior league hockey, I'm I'm rediscovering that uh, uh, that side of myself. Uh, I think I lead my team in penalty minutes. If not <laughs> anything, yeah. <laughs> well, you got to lead them in something. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's um, let's talk about. Um, most people, when they talk about hockey, or at least Americans anyway, they, they circle back to the miracle on ice, and it was a galvanizing flashpoint for hockey, so we'll start there. I mean, it seems simplistic to ask, but why does something like that resonate so so much with Americans? Yeah, that is a terrific question of why it's, it's still, you know, 40 plus years later, uh, why this is still an important event. And uh, for the players themselves, I, I interviewed a few of the players on that 1980 team for my research. And, and they're somewhat surprised as well that, uh, that this game has had such lasting uh, resonance. So I begin the book with uh, um, the, the miracle on ice of listening to the game with my dad back in, in February 1980. And then I do talk about its historical significance. And uh, of course, you know, for people who've seen the, the Disney film Miracle, the, the film begins with this montage of, uh, uh, of scenes from the news from the 1970s, the fall of Saigon, uh, the energy crisis, Watergates, um, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. So all of these things in the 1970s, building to a point by the winter of 1979-1980, when the United States was really at a, at a low point. And so this victory by the hockey team against the Americans' Cold War rival, the Soviet Union, it was really, you know, kind of a shot in the arm 
for the United States at something of a, of a down point in, in its history after years and years of really, of really bad news. Uh, so there's that kind of immediate context in terms of um, uh, why the game was so meaningful back in February 1980. Uh, but to think of why it's, it's still important, right? So think about why was this victory over the Soviet Union, why does it still matter to people when the Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore? So, so this game gets really at something deeper, and this is what I look at in the book. And, and the point I make is that the, the 1980 Olympic hockey team were real underdogs. You know, these were college students. They were genuine amateurs. In playing the Soviets, you know, the Soviets had had this epic run from the 60s through the 70s in winning Olympic gold medals in hockey, in winning uh, the annual world championships in hockey. The Soviets were essentially, and I talk about this in the book, they were essentially a professional team. Uh, they were paid to play hockey. They played together all year. Uh, and so this was this was just a dynamic, dominant team. They would regularly beat NHL All-Stars, whereas you have this team of, of college students, and they were brought together by Herb Brooks. They were really trained for one purpose, to beat the Soviets, and, and they pulled out this, this remarkable upset. Uh, so they were underdogs in the sense that they were amateurs playing, playing essentially professionals. Uh, they were really a team of, of blue-collar kids. And I talk about this in the book, that uh, they came from families. Their parents were school teachers. Uh, their families worked. Uh, they were blue-collar workers. They worked on the railroad. Uh, one guy's dad was a, uh, a waiter in an Italian restaurant. They were sending money home back to their parents during the year. So you have this team of blue-collar amateurs. They defeat the best team in the world. And it still resonates, I would say, because, you know, Americans, we like to think of ourselves as underdogs. We're drawn in sports to stories like Rocky and Rudy and Remember the Titans, these, these underdog stories that have such resonance in our popular culture. And the 1980 Olympic team, they were really, uh, they were true underdogs. And they were, in essence, the last underdogs, the last true underdogs that Americans have been in international competition. You think of since then, um, you know, you can't make a movie about the 1992 Dream Team, the basketball team at the Barcelona Olympics, crushing Angola and other teams in the field, right? Disney can't make a movie about that. You can't make a movie about the women's uh, national soccer team winning the World Cup and the Olympics time after time after time. We're drawn, American audiences are drawn to stories of underdogs and the Olympic team, the 1980 Olympic hockey team, this was a, an instance of true underdogs. True. And we can throw in the, uh, the Sandlot in that, in that collection as well, that movie. Yeah. The Sandlot, that's, you know, that's a favorite. And, uh, the Sandlot is this, you know, for those of you who don't know it, this is a film from the 1990s about this group of kids who play, you know, basically next door to a junkyard. And uh, it's just this ragtag group of kids playing baseball. And one of the highlights of the film is that this team of rich kids comes over with their new uniforms and on their shiny bikes and stuff. And, and the Sandlot kids just pound them in, in playing this game. 
And, you know, whenever I watch the film, you know, I get excited. You're excited about these Sandlot kids taking it to the rich kids. But really, when you think about it, in international sports, the United States, we're the rich kids. You know, we, we, uh, we're the dominant ones. We put by far uh, more money into training our athletes than any other country in the world. Billions and billions of dollars go into training uh, training our athletes. And so, and yet we like to think that we're, uh, you know, we're the rough and tumble, uh, Sandlot kids. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great, uh, thing to, to believe, but that's, you're right. It's not the case. You know, I learned a lot while reading your book and particularly about the evolution of the sport. And what really fascinated me was bandy, which is considered one of hockey's ancestors. Can you talk about that sport? Yeah, so bandy still exists. It's uh, probably the you know we could call it the original form of of hockey, and uh, bandy dates back into the 1800s. It was originally an English sport uh, played on the uh, on the washes in in northeast England, and um, it's a sport you can imagine. You know, the best way to describe it is is soccer on ice uh, with with sticks. So. Uh, you typically have 11 players on a side on a frozen space, roughly as big as a, as a soccer field. The players do have skates. They have skate or they have sticks. The sticks are shorter than hockey sticks. And rather than having a, a blade that's flat on the ice, the bandy stick is, is upturned. So it's more like a field hockey stick. And the game is played with a ball rather than a, rather than a puck. And uh, so this was the form of the game that was played in England. And I should add here that that hockey or versions of hockey go well back into uh, into the 1700s, even into the 1600s. So we see paintings of hockey players in uh, in Dutch paintings of frozen canals, right, of, of people with sticks and balls on the on the canal. So so versions of hockey go back centuries. But this version, Bandy, dates from England in the 1800s. And uh, leading up then to the late 1800s, this is the version that you saw played not only in Europe, but also really in North America. So, you know, as, as settlers coming over, I should say, as, as colonists were coming over from England and Scotland in the 1700s and the early 1800s, they brought this game that was played on large frozen spaces uh, with large teams, with goals, with sticks, with some kind of projectile. And this was the, you could say, the proto form of hockey. Hockey then, what we would see as hockey today, or Canadian hockey, this develops in Montreal and in eastern Canada beginning in the 1870s. And the distinctive features of Canadian hockey, as opposed to this earlier version, bandy, is that you played it with a puck, you played it with this longer stick with the flat blade and you played it in a more confined space with fewer people, right? So initially you'd have six or seven on a side, um, but you moved away from having this large expanse, a more fast moving game played with the ball into a more confined space that would better fit in an indoor skating rink. And that brings the movement from uh, the, the original form or the earlier form of the game into what's more familiar with us. Uh, bandy continued to be played. Bandy's continued to play uh, mainly in Nordic countries, uh, but it went well down into the early 20th century. And you'd have, as I talk about in the book, 
Uh, at some tournaments in, in Switzerland and in Europe, you'd have two teams that would play bandy, and then they'd make a room on the ice for two teams that would play the Canadian version of hockey. So what sets uh, Canadian hockey apart from other countries? Well, what would set it apart was the size of the rink, uh, playing it with a puck. That was really the key thing. And in looking back in early uh, early press accounts at the turn of the century in Europe as, as hockey spread uh, in that region, with, with all versions of the game, the term that was typically used was hockey, which makes it difficult then for the historians to figure out, okay, what version of hockey were they playing? Was it this version from England? The, which we know as bandy, or was it the version coming from coming from Canada? And the telltale signs were the puck, as well as as these longer sticks with the flat blades, which which came from which came from Canada. And uh, it was interesting to read, you know, as I look back as I did my research into press accounts from the time. There was this debate among Europeans as to you know what is the better version of the game and and. Uh, each, each version had its, had its advocates, uh, and, and it basically came down to, you know, what allows greater speed, what allows more passing, uh, what's more exciting for spectators, what's more exciting for fans. And so, uh, it was the case that, you know, gradually in the early 20th century, even into the 1920s, you still had communities, especially in Germany, that were playing playing principally bandy. Uh, but it was gradually the case that puck hockey came to be the adopted sport. And really by 1920, in 1920, puck hockey is played at the Antwerp Olympics. And this really seals the Canadian version of the game as the, the primary international game. Right. I mean, in Canada, they called it our game. And um, even in the 1960s, um, you know, the NHL was dominated by the Canadians. I think they won five Stanley Cups and the Maple Leafs even won a couple. But uh, Canada was undergoing some big uh, cultural and economic and political changes back in the 1960s. Can you speak to those? Yeah. So that was a fascinating period to look at is uh, and, and throughout the book, right? You know, so this is a world history of hockey, uh, but the 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 main country or the main nation that I talk about throughout the book is is Canada, uh, and uh, you know the Canadians are credited as being the inventors of the game with the puck. Uh, the Canadians dominated in international competition right from the beginnings in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, the National Hockey League, the league that began in Canada in 1917, is the the premier hockey league in the world. It draws players from around the world. So a big part of my book does discuss uh, Canadian history and hockey's place in Canada. And in looking at the 60s in particular, this was a period um, where you do see a lot of changes in Canada. You know, one of the things I discuss, for instance, is the adoption of the Canadian flag, the, the maple leaf flag, which we all associate with Canada today. Uh, that was adopted in the 1960s, 1960s, replacing the older red ensign flag that had the Union Jack up in the in the Canton, up in the corner. And this was a move intended to indicate that Canada is not, uh, you know, it's it's not part of the British Empire. It is a a diverse country of people from from many backgrounds, many faiths, and many cultures. 
So you have in the 1960s the development of what we would associate with Canadian society today in terms of bilingualism, in terms of uh, welfare policies. And uh, hockey is set against this background. You have a modernizing society. And there was a lot of what was fascinating is that there was a lot of... uh, criticism, a lot of questioning about what was regarded as the national game, where people thought uh, the game is is violent. Uh, the game is one in which young men are, are essentially exploited to be um, prepared for careers in the NHL and then tossed away. Uh, people criticized the power that the NHL had over amateur hockey in Canada. Uh, And at the same time, Canada was Canada's national teams were no longer performing as well. They were no longer dominating in the Olympics and in the world championships. So there is this kind of soul searching in Canada uh, as to the question of why are we not able to win gold medals like we did back in the in the 20s and 30s into the 1950s. So all of these questions swirled together. I mean, you even had discussions of Canada in Parliament during question time with the prime minister, there were there were questions posed as to, you know, why aren't we winning in the world championships anymore? This is a this is an that inspired government inquiries into the state of hockey in Canada. Serious business. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Canada was always known, especially for its rougher style of play, as opposed to the Soviets who were more passing. But I know that uh, you wrote about this 1963 series by George Mortimer kind of lifted the veil on the game's darker side. And uh, what did he find? And was it necessarily a bad thing that he exposed it? Yeah. So this, uh, this was a series that was done in the Globe and Mail newspaper in, uh, in Toronto uh, in 1963. And it was a, a, a long series over several, I think it was um, 10, uh, you know, 10 articles in the series uh, and this really drew national attention. It drew the attention of politicians. It drew the attention of the president of the NHL, Clarence Campbell. Uh, and he called out, um, you know, a few of the issues that came out. One was the violence uh, in the sport. And there was the recognition, not only is there violence in the top level in the NHL, uh, but the violence was creeping down into the junior levels of the game basically because, um, you know, younger players wanted to show their toughness as a way of moving up the ladder, moving up the ladder toward the NHL. And, uh, and this is something that will be, I mean, it, it's an issue in hockey down to today, this understanding that if as a player you don't, and, and, I admit it as myself as a former hockey player, right? When I was a kid, I recognized I'm not that fast. I'm not that skilled, but I'm pretty sturdy. I can take a hit and I can give a hit. If there's one way I'm going to get ahead in the game, it's by hitting other people. And, uh, and this has been a problem, you know, throughout, uh, throughout North American hockey and especially Canadian hockey for decades, this recognition. And this is something that would be fed by coaches and Mortimer and other critics pointed to this, where uh, players were groomed to be rough, to be hitters, and in many instances, to be fighters. Uh, And so so there's this understanding that, that violence is not just a side aspect of the game, 
but violence is something intrinsic to the game. Violence is something that is trained in players from a young age with the idea that rough, violent players are the ones who are going to make it to the top level. And Mortimer and others, even already in the 1950s, are recognizing that this is a stain on on the game, that the game is not simply about skill and speed and passing and shooting, uh, but that this violent aspect is part of it. And so if we fast forward into uh, the 1970s, into the early 1980s, uh, you have studies by Canadian sociologists and researchers who are looking at just how deeply embedded this emphasis on violence, on hitting, cheap shots, and fighting was in Canadian junior hockey, all the way down to, you know, 10-year-olds. So I guess the movie Slapshot was on point. Yes, exactly right. You did, Oh, you know, and Slapshot is set right in the... Uh, when, when did the film come out? You know, but it's set in the 1970s. Right, uh, late 70s. Yeah, in minor pro hockey. And uh, no, that was certainly based on on uh, the reality of minor hockey during uh, during that time. One of the players from the 1980 Olympic team whom I interviewed uh, is a guy named Phil Verkota. Uh, and he, I asked him about, because um, uh, a number of the, the players on that team did go to the NHL afterwards. Uh-huh. Uh, but he didn't. He chose to go to Finland. He signed with Finland right away. And I asked him about that. And he said, you know, for one, you didn't make that much money in the NHL back then. So so it wasn't like I was passing up a lot of money. I got more money in Finland. And he said, the other thing is, is I didn't want to have to deal with the goons. I didn't want to have to deal with the fighting and the rough play. Uh, so I'd go to Europe, I'd get paid more money, and I didn't have to worry about my, you know, my safety. <laughs> That's true. You know, I remember when Canada lost the uh, first game of the 72 Summit Series, and, and Sports Illustrated's headline is the one that jumped out at me. It said, oh, Canada, as an OH Canada. <laughs> and it was kind of an exasperated headline. Uh, why was the 72 Series between Canada and the Soviet Union such an important one? Yeah, so this is something American sports fans uh, are, not, are not that familiar with, is the 1972, it's called the Summit Series, uh, between a team of NHL players, it was called Team Canada, uh, and then the Soviet national team. So uh, this is significant. First of all, uh, this is the first instance when the Soviets, who've been dominating international hockey, and I should add here, international amateur hockey. So in both the Olympics and in the Hockey World Championships, it was, it was amateur teams who were expected to play. So the Soviets had dominated international amateur hockey throughout the 1960s. But the Canadians, even though the Canadians would send teams that would lose to the Soviets in the World Championships and the Olympics, the Canadians would always argue, well, our best players are the pros who play in the NHL. They're the best players in the world. The Soviets, meanwhile, recognized, and the Soviet coach Anatoly Tarasov he recognized that the best players were the Canadian pros who played in the NHL. So there was this realization on both sides that to really find out who the best hockey players in the world were, the best hockey talent, we had to get the Canadian pros and the Soviet so-called amateurs to play against each other. So in 1972, we have this series for the first time ever, an amateur champion against a team of professionals 
two teams representing completely different political systems, different economic systems, rivals in the Cold War, they're going to play against each other. And the expectation was, uh, so there are four games played in Canada, and then four games played in the Soviet Union. The series was played in September 1972. It was before the NHL season had started. And the expectation on all sides was that the Canadians would dominate. In fact, even you know, in looking at uh, uh, memoirs by Russian players, uh, by Soviet players on that 1972 team, you know, what comes out in the Russian sources is that Soviet officials themselves expected the Canadians to win. Soviet officials went into the locker room before that first game in Montreal, and they told the guys, okay, guys, we know you're going to lose, but just just lose with dignity. And the, and the Soviet players were astonished. They've never heard this from their own officials before, right? The message has always been, you must win. You must show the superiority of the Soviet Union. Right. Well, the Soviets go out and they crush the Canadians in this first game. And, and Canadians are just astonished. They're devastated. They can't believe, you know, they come up with all manner of excuses as to why this was just kind of a one-off fluke. Uh, but, you know, the honest people in the crowd who are watching the game recognize that the Soviets are just terrific skaters. They're strong. They pass the puck. Uh, and so right from this first game, the, you know, kind of the die is set as to how this series is going to play out, that this is really going to be a challenge for, uh, for the Canadians. One thing I talk about in the book, the fourth game, which is played in Vancouver, Again, the Soviets dominate, and uh, and the the fans in the in the arena in Vancouver they just shower the Canadian team with booze. They just see them playing as, you know, basically bush league hockey. So ultimately, you know, how the story ends up, and this is you know for for just as the miracle on ice for Americans is this moment when. Uh, you know, people remember, people who were around back in 1980 remember where they were when they hear the news of the Americans beating the Soviets in 1980. Likewise, in 1972, any Canadian who has a pulse remembers where they were when Canada wins the series in the eighth game on a last second goal in Moscow. And so the Canadians ultimately win the series, but this shock of being decisively beaten in early games in the series of seeing how good the Soviets were. This really sends shockwaves throughout Canadian hockey where they realize, yeah, maybe we're not the best in the world anymore. And maybe we have to change the way we train players and develop players to keep up with the Soviets and the Europeans. Well, it was interesting because in the first game, I mean, the Canadians jumped out to like, I think they scored 15 seconds into the game and they were it was two nothing and they thought oh this is great and then all of a sudden russia came back and tied it um uh, i i was really fascinated by your uh, recounting of the reaction of a colleague of yours who said he went to bed that night staring at the ceiling <laughs> wondering wondering about the existence of god yeah and that colleague became a theologian right so so right away he was 13 years old watching the game on tv so uh you know this 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 pretty much uh, brought his his whole world his whole worldview uh, broke it down to his foundations right the Canadians are not the best hockey players in the world and does God even exist yeah oh man talk about bring your life into sharp focus yeah yeah exactly 
you know, at what point did the Russians finally say to themselves, and they might have said this in the 1950s, um, you know, hey, we're the best at, at this. Uh, was there a defining moment for them? For the for the Soviets, for the Russians? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the most interesting sources I came up with in my research, and I wasn't able to write about it at length in the book, uh, in uh, Library and Archives Canada in, in Ottawa, the, the National Archives of Canada, uh, I found a transcript of recordings that Ken Dryden, so the, the Hall of Fame goalie for the Montreal Canadiens, later a member of Parliament, uh, Ken Dryden in 1973 went to Czechoslovakia, Sweden, and the Soviet Union on basically a fact-finding mission. So the governing body of Canadian hockey sent him over to basically find out what's going on over there. And Dryden walked around with a tape recorder and recorded his observations. He met with different coaches. And then, you know, somebody later typed up, typed up these recordings. And, and I was looking through, it was a thick transcript of all of Dryden's observations, right? So Dryden, he got, he got a history degree. He was a lawyer. This is a smart, observant guy. And in his conversations with Soviet coaches, uh, the Soviets were already making the point to him that we have, uh, we, in the way we develop players, in the way we prepare for competitions, we have advanced beyond what the Canadians do. Uh, and, and a coach told him explicitly, you know, said to you, you, Ken Dryden, you, the Canadians, you're stuck in the past. You don't change. We, the Soviets, we change. We've learned from you. We've learned from the Swedes. We've learned from the Czechoslovaks. Uh, we come up with our own innovations. We are more progressive in moving this game forward whereas you are stuck in the past and you don't change. And this was the, the big message that Dryden brought back to the, the governing body of Canadian hockey to say, you know, the, and he said the Soviets are already learning from their summit series against us. They're already adopting elements of the Canadian game and incorporating in, into their game, whereas we're still stuck in the way we've been playing for decades. And so already by that point, the Soviets have this sense that uh, uh, we're doing things that the Canadians and others don't. You know, the research you did for this book was really extensive, and I was really impressed with you tapping into the archives, and particularly in the Central European countries like the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and even Finland in, in, the, in the Scandinavian. How valuable were those arch archives in your research? Oh, this was... Uh, these sources were essential, and uh, uh, this was this was just fascinating for me. And so, so I should say once again, going back to the question of of why I wrote the book and the aims for the for the book and for the series, uh, the series editor Chris Young, you know, not only did he want um, area specialists to do research on sports using using their language skills. He also wanted uh, the books in this series to be original works of research in the sense that. Uh, uh, the writers would go into archives. They would use, you know, whether oral history sources, uh, library sources, uh, but they would get into some primary materials. And so this book, you know, as a, as a world history of hockey, I draw upon the work that a number of scholars and journalists and other writers have done 
Uh, but I also wanted to have a heavy dose of original research, not only in, in archives in Europe, but also archives in the United States and, and Canada. And, you know, the sources I found in Europe were, were particularly helpful. Um, in particular, some of the sources I looked at in, in Prague, I, I looked at uh, um, government records about how the, the Communist Party state already in the 1950s organized hockey. That was, that was really fascinating to look at, just the, the mechanism by which the state controlled sport. Uh, a terrific, one of the best places I worked was uh, in the archives of the International Olympic Committee in Lausanne, Switzerland. You know, one, it's a fabulous location. If, if you can ever get a gig doing research at the Olympic Study Center in Lausanne, take it. It's, it's a wonderful <laughs> place to work. Beautiful setting. Uh, but the but the source materials there were just were just fascinating, right? So one of the things I found in those sources were uh, basically the negotiations and the contracts for the American television rights for the Winter Olympics in the aftermath of the 1980 Miracle on Ice, and you see how Rune Arledge, the the head of sports at ABC, how he just he wanted to make sure that the Winter Olympics and in particular, Olympic hockey was going to be on ABC. And he ratcheted up, you know, by the tens of millions, how much the network was paying for the Olympics. And, and you see in the source materials how the members of the IOC were just literally laughing all the way to the bank. They were saying in, in meetings, hey, we'll take it. If he's willing to pay, we'll take this money. So those were really, uh, you know, some terrific, terrific source materials that I found in uh, in Europe, but also in Canada. I went to, uh, as I said, the archives in Ottawa, uh, the archives of Ontario in Toronto. Uh, there is a terrific um, collection in Calgary at the Glenbow Institute that that provided some wonderful materials about the the television program Hockey Night in Canada that was really useful. Uh, in Winnipeg, I found some terrific diaries and letters from Canadian players who had been in Europe in the 20s and 30s. So that was, you know, it's just a treat as a historian when you go into an archive and you find something that you know another writer, another historian has not used before. That's, you know, that's just exciting. That's true. Plus, you know, it kind of opened a new window because they've been closed for so many years because of communist rule. This is correct, right? And and the materials in the materials in Prague archives. Uh, I went to Bratislava and looked at materials there. Uh, the materials in Hungary that I used were the records of um, um, uh, the the Open Society uh, archive. Uh, so those materials, and then I was also able to tap into some Russian sources. I didn't go to Russia to do research. Curiously, uh, a Canadian graduate student went to Moscow uh, back in the early 2000s, and he copied the the minutes and the documents of the state committee, the Soviet state committee that oversaw the development of hockey. This is back in the 1950s. He copied all these documents in Russian archives and then brought them back. And so all these papers are at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And so I was able to look into those source materials as well in, in, in Russian. And uh, so it's fascinating materials that a lot of people uh, have not seen before, even, um, uh, even in the countries themselves. There's not 
you don't have the kind of academic study of sports as you see now in North American universities going on in some uh, European um, European countries. So some of the materials I looked at were, you know, things that that other researchers hadn't looked at at all. Mm-hmm. What I found interesting also was the uh, Czech coach who was decades ahead of his time, and I'm going to butcher his name here, but it's Ludek Bukak, and correct me on the name there. Ludek Bukac, yeah. Uh, Bukac just passed away last year in 2020. I was able to uh, to meet him. Uh, we had a great lunch together, uh, shared a beer. Um, it, it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, so I enjoyed talking with him. And then at the same time, I had looked at a lot of the materials he had put together when he was assistant coach of the national team for Czechoslovakia. Uh, back in the 1960s. And uh, so it was interesting for me to get the perspective of, you know, having seen what he had done back, you know, in in the prime of his coaching career, and then catch up with him decades later, and, uh, and to see how he looked back on his career and how he looked back on uh, on hockey and the development of hockey. And, uh, you know, that was fascinating. So you had said he was ahead of his time. And one of the things that he did back in the 60s is, he developed the kind of analytical approach to hockey that we now see that's now standard across all sports, right? So when we watch, when you watch a hockey game now, you typically see the assistant coach will be behind the bench with an, with an iPad, you know, where he's bringing up some kind of data about the other team's formations, you know, how they do face-offs, how they get their puck out of their own end and so forth. Uh, we see this in baseball, we see this in soccer and in other sports of using data uh, to, you know, situate players on the field or on the rink and, and to plan strategy. Bukach was doing this already in the 1960s and it was, you know, by, he didn't have computers. So he just had a team of, of research assistants. They would watch a lot of games. They would chart it out on paper. I saw these charts. They would do all kinds of, of data tables and so forth. And they use this to take, you know, kind of a, a scientific approach to defensive and offensive strategy for the for the Czechoslovak national team. So, yeah, it was it was fascinating. And it came out of Bukac was a true believer in communism. It came out of this notion that uh, uh, this communist idea that you must use scientific data in order to uh, work toward better ends. Right. And Bukach was, uh, you know, he was doing this kind of analysis when Billy Bean was a toddler in Florida. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. What did he mean with his observation that Soviet hockey was not the product of a scientific understanding of people? Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. Uh, well, one, that line comes out of the, the animosity the sense of rivalry within the Soviet bloc between Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. And this is something I talk about in the book and, and how it relates to hockey, but I also look at it as it relates to you know politics, economic planning, and so forth. So Czechoslovakia in the 1920s and 30s had one of the most advanced economies in Europe, an advanced industrial economy. After the war in 1948, uh, the Czechoslovak communists take power in the country and they insist that the country will now follow the model of the Soviet Union in terms of politics as well as in terms of economic development. 
for Czechoslovakia, this was a step backwards, right? They, during the 20s and 30s, they had had an advanced West European style economy. Now they're going to follow the model of Stalinist uh, economic planning. And uh, so there was, you know, this is the background in terms of this tension of many Czechs and Slovaks recognizing, hey, we're going backwards by adopting what the Soviets tell us to do, whether in terms of building a factory or building a hockey team. And so we see elements of this with with Bukac's comment that uh, the expected model was to follow what the Soviets were doing, in particular what Anatoly Tarasov, the the um, the second coach, assistant coach of, of the Soviet national team, what he was doing in terms of offensive strategy and player development. Mm-hmm. And Bukac did go to Moscow. He worked with Tarasov in Moscow to see exactly what he was doing. So he had a firsthand basis on on what the Soviets were doing in their development program. And he came to the view of that, that Soviet hockey, like most things Soviet, had a veneer of science to them, uh, but it was really flawed science. And, uh, and so he was, he was pretty dismissive of Tarasov's influence in the game and, and thought uh, that his own country uh, was much more scientific. They were much more attuned to the educational aspects of coaching than what he saw in the Soviet Union. And uh, yeah, and that was his his view there. Tarasov, in turn, he saw the Czechs as, as stealing wholesale from his ideas. Uh, so he was dismissive of what uh, what Czechoslovakia was doing. Right. And, you know, I was also surprised at how uh, hockey evolved in such a passion among people in Finland. I mean, was that a natural progression for them? They're right next door to the giant bear. Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, with with the Finns, it's you know the case that they're sandwiched between uh, between the Finns and the Swedes. They are really sandwiched between East and West. And in both, uh, I, you know, I look at the development of hockey in Sweden and Finland, and and this was a region where bandy, the sport we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, remained popular well past World War II. And and Bandy is still popular in Finland and Sweden today. So it was only after World War II that puck hockey, Canadian hockey, uh, really begins to take off in the the Nordic countries. Uh, And this was the result of, as I discussed in the book, this is quite deliberate by sports officials in these two countries where they want to develop hockey as a sport for young people, uh, they promote it as a sport within clubs. They put money. Um, you, you see a terrific model uh, or a case study of the social democratic system in Sweden and Finland where uh, local sports clubs work together with municipal governments, together with the national government, as well as in many instances with local businesses, pooling resources to build rinks to get equipment and to develop young players. And, uh, and we see this in, in Finland in particular. And part of the reason that hockey was so attractive for the Swedes and the Finns was not that they regarded it as, as a Canadian game, but that they regarded it as an international game. This was, hockey was for them a venue to engage in international competition and to show their strength in athletics on the world stage. They loved bandy, 
But bandy really had a limited regional appeal as a sport, whereas hockey was an Olympic sport. Hockey had its world championships every year. And this was something that the Finns and the Swedes uh, saw where they could, you know, where they could show themselves, where they could prove themselves. And uh, with Finland in particular, one of the things I look at is um, the Finns hosted the world championship in the uh in the 1960s, and they built this fantastic modern arena uh, in Tampere. And, uh, and this was intended to show we are a modern society. We're an industrial society. Uh, we're standing on our own from the Swedes, apart from the Swedes, apart from the Russians, and we're going to uh, demonstrate ourselves, right? And and we know this from international sports, right? When, when countries host international tournaments, whether it's the Olympics, whether it's the World Cup, this is a way for them to put themselves on the world stage and to show their modernity, to show their efficiency in organization, to hopefully get wins in competition. And this was the case with the Finns as well. And the defining moment for the Finns, it wasn't even a win. In 1965 World Championships, they had a 2-2 tie with the Swedes. Yeah, they had a two-two tie, but this was this was a you know we could call it a moral victory, right? Right. Uh, so for the Finns and the Swedes, they have this long-standing rivalry, right? The Swedes look upon the Finns as the younger brother, and and the relationship between F- Finland and Sweden was really important for the development of hockey in Finland. Uh, you had teams that would participate in Swedish leagues. Uh, the Finns would send their players over to Sweden for coaching. Uh, so Finnish and Swedish hockey really grew up together side by side, or we could say the Finns were, you know, a bit behind in terms of their development, but they drew a lot from the Swedes. And they also drew a lot from, from the Russians and from the Czechoslovaks. Finland was this unique case where you would have coaches coming from both East and West into Finland, bringing their ideas and now today, I, w- I would ask, I did interviews with NHL scouts, uh, with former coaches, and I would ask people today, who has the best development program in the world in terms of, of you know, developing young players? And typically, they would point to the Finns. They would point to the Finns as a model of what's called hybrid hockey today that blends the toughness of North American hockey with the emphasis on speed and passing. Uh, that you see in European hockey. And and Finland is the place where you see that best developed. And speaking of the great model of those attributes that you talked about, uh, the emergency, the emergence of uh, Wayne Gretzky gave hockey basically a global star. And you say in your book that some of the writers believed he restored the Canadian game in Canada. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, that is, it's, it's fascinating um, to look back in the 1980s, especially the early 80s, when when Gretzky was emerging, and to see what Canadian writers had to say about him, and uh, so here I'll say that you know one of the the places I did work, which was really terrific, was the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. They have a research center uh, out in the out in the suburbs. You know that's where they keep all the old sticks and the old jerseys. I was able to go back into the into the archives and see all of this stuff, uh, you know, that's not on display in the museum. Uh, but they also have, you know, a variety of different materials and they have thick, thick clippings files about, you know, great players and coaches and so forth. And, and of course there's tons of material on Gretzky. And so it was fascinating to look at what was written about him in the Canadian press in those early years and this recognition that, that, 
he was he was not only a phenomenal player, uh, but he represented something about Canada that that the Canadians really wanted to hold on to. And I should give something of the background here, you know. So by the by the early 1980s, when Gretzky emerges and he's setting all these records, uh, so we'd had the Summit Series in 1972, and then you'd had more losses by Canadian national teams to Soviet and European teams. Uh, you'd had an increase in the NHL of violence and fighting. Um, so there was this sense that the game, the Canadian game, was being debased, that it was being lost. And so all of a sudden you have this young player who's a phenomenal talent, who's a talent, you know, Gretzky was not a fighter. He was not a hitter. Uh, instead, he was just creative. He was a scorer. He was a passer. And for Canadians, he embodied everything that was great about Canadian hockey. And as this kid coming from a blue collar background, he embodied, who had learned the game on a backyard rink that had been put down by his dad, uh, he embodied everything that was great about, uh, about Canada. And uh, there was a, a Canadian poet who writes about hockey, Doug Beardsley. I quote him in the book of saying, if I remember the quote right, you know, the fact that we have found him shows how meaningful hockey is to Canada. And he goes even further and he says, you know, seeing greatness in Gretzky, we see greatness in ourselves. So already in the early 80s, Gretzky was put on a pedestal, not just in terms of being a hockey hero for Canada, but in being a national hero for Canada. And that's still the case. You know, that's still the case that Gretzky has this this esteem in uh, in Canada um, that's still undiminished, and he's been retired for now for twenty years. You know, he's still a national hero in Canada, and he's still, as I make the point in my book, he's the most famous hockey player in the world, even though he hasn't put on his skates in twenty years. And I'm sure most Canadians knew where they were when they found out Gretzky was going to Los Angeles. Yeah, that's another big shock, and that was that was really a, a an interesting story to look at. To look at uh, uh, when Gretzky was traded to the Los Angeles Kings from the Edmonton Oilers, you know. And in terms of sports history, this is I was trying to think, Bob. You know, is there another another player transaction that would rate? You know, maybe Babe Ruth getting sold Babe Ruth, Red yeah. Sox to the Yankees. You know, if someone who's, you know, but Gretzky at that point, when he was traded from the Kings to the, to the, or excuse me, from the Oilers to the Kings, that would be Babe Ruth in like 1926 or so, right? When he had been breaking records and it was at the height of his powers, uh, Gretzky had won four Stanley Cups and he's sent down to Los Angeles. And it's a fascinating backstory because the owner of the Oilers at the time, Peter Pocklington, uh, this is where, you know, the economic background comes into sports. He had just, you know, become so indebted uh, due to his various business developments and business failings that he needed cash. And the best way to get some cash was to sell the best hockey player in the, in the world. And on the other end of the story, Gretzky's arrival in Los Angeles, one, it provides a boost to hockey in Southern California. You know, the, the King right. has just been this moribund franchise throughout the 1970s. So, so Gretzky stirs excitement about hockey tickets sell out, you know, the, the, 
television revenues for the Kings, you know, climbs year after year. And one of the stories I tell that becomes that becomes key is that, and it, you might remember this, you know, when Gretzky arrives, the, the Kings change their colors. They go from purple and gold to these new black and silver jerseys. And the jerseys and caps just fly off the shelves. And this really starts the boom in NHL merchandise. And this is one of the, the, the marketing economic stories I tell in the book of how hockey gear, you know, connected with gear and other sports, you know, really takes off, becomes a billion dollar business in the 1990s. And in hockey, it's, it's spurred by Gretzky's move to Gretzky's move to the Kings. Yeah, very true. And let's move on to women in hockey. I mean, there's been pioneers like Stephanie Boyd and her parents, uh, Justine Blaney, and they really changed the dynamic of youth hockey, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So this is a, a remarkable and important story in looking at, and, and I, it begins in the, in the 1980s and looking at players. You mentioned Stephanie Boyd, who is this uh, talented peewee player in Ontario in the 1980s. Justine Blaney, this is a, a terrific story I tell of, uh, um, of a teenage girl and her mother who sue the you know, the local hockey association to allow her to be able to play. And this is a case that goes all the way to the Ontario Supreme Court, deciding that indeed uh, this girl can play and, and there cannot be discrimination in terms of opportunities for girls and women in, in sports. So this sets the stage uh, into the 1990s when hockey for women and girls really takes off in Canada and in the United States. And so I set that that story against the context of, you know, looking at at social change, at economics change. You know, what you see at this time is um, a broader shift in terms of women not only working, not only having jobs, but young women expecting that they have careers. And so you have more women going to university, more women entering the professions, uh, more women going into graduate schools and professional schools. And so those larger social and economic changes, we also see this in sports more broadly and in hockey in particular. And uh, so it's, it's interesting to see in some of the, the particular players I look at, you know, one of the points I try to make is that you don't necessarily have, how to say, you know, parents of girls who wanted to play hockey they weren't um, they weren't feminist trailblazers. You know, you typically have people from you know you typically have conservative families, business owning families. But by the 1980s and the early 1990s, they adopt this perspective that their daughters should have the same opportunities as their sons, whether that be going to school or whether it be participating in sports. And so that shift happens pretty quickly in the early to mid 1990s. Uh, I played hockey in Duluth in in the 70s into, you know, my career really ends in 1986. Um, And I asked, I talked to my sister, I talked to, you know, other women that, you know, grew up in my neighborhood that I went to school with. And I said, hey, did you want to play hockey? And they said, yeah, but there was just this this unwritten rule that girls didn't play hockey. And, you know, and I reflected back on my own experience and my own outlook at that time. And, uh, 
and it was just, you know, it was something we didn't think to say that one the best, the best athlete in my neighborhood uh, was this girl. She was phenomenal. And, she, and as I find out later, I, I talked to her, she said, I loved hockey. I loved playing with my brothers. And, and we never thought to say to our coaches, Hey, let's have Lori play on her team. Cause she's terrific. That's and so, true. you know, and then years later, or not years later, a decade later, in the in the mid '90s or, or the late '90s, Duluth, you know, with the university team at the University of Minnesota Duluth, this is an international team with players from around the world. They're winning national championships, and so the turn comes quickly. And I write about in the book. I remember uh, I was living in Kansas at the time, going to graduate school, and I remember reading the stories of how girls and women hockey, women's hockey, was developing in Minnesota, and I thought. Why didn't we think of this all along? You know, why couldn't girls have played this played this game all along? So, you know, one of the things I try to look at in the book is is the background, uh, as I talked about, but also this sudden uh, shift, and yet at the same time, the continued obstacles that remain uh, for girls in women's hockey in North America as well as in the rest of the world. True. And as a footnote in Tampa Bay, you may remember the lightning made history. Yes, exactly. Yes. Sorry. Manom Rayom. Yeah. Playing playing exhibition games in uh, 92 and 93 in Expo Expo Hall in Tampa, which was charitably known as the barn because they had, they used to have rodeos there. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that was, you know, that was a huge story. Right. And that was for a lot of people, uh, eye-opening, you know, not just in the sense of a, a woman playing professional hockey, but a woman playing hockey period. Right. And that was in the, in the early 1990s, but in looking at, you know, looking at participation numbers and, and the development of the game of the women's game and the girls game, that shift really happens in, in the mid 1990s and it moves really quickly. And a big part of it, as I talk about in the book is connected in the United States, at least with title nine and how you see the development of, of girls teams at colleges and universities. What about, uh, what about the medical issues hockey players face? I mean, we're aware of the lawsuits NFL players have been filing over CTE, but you know, hockey's a rough sport too. Are there examples of um, former players suffering because of the hard knocks they took? Yeah. You know, I was just listening to a podcast interview with a former player yesterday. It was uh, a a sports journalist here in Minnesota. He's the beat writer from the Minnesota wild. And he was interviewing a a player who had been in the NHL in the early two thousands. I can't remember the the player's name, but you know, one of the questions that came up, uh, the journalist asked him, how many concussions did you have in your career? And how did those affect your play? And, and I, I thought, boy, this is striking now that this is a question, you know, think of, think of, you know, sports journalists of years past where you would ask a player about his head injuries and how it's affecting his health. And so there's an awareness now, as you said, of the, the real danger and how this is a fundamental part of the game uh, in terms of, of head injuries uh, in terms of the damage that players can uh, you know, presumably can gain over the uh, over the course of their careers. And in the, the epilogue to the book, I talk about, you know, the instances uh, in 2011 were three NHL players, all of whom the most noted of whom is Derek Bugard, who played for the Minnesota wild. Um, all of whom were noted as enforcers, as fighters. 
And in the wake of that, so Bugard uh, died an accidental overdose. Uh, and then in the wake of that, the New York Times did, uh, John Branch of the New York Times did a terrific investigative series where he looked into the health problems that Bugard had sustained throughout his career. And Bugard was an example of what I was talking about earlier of this young Canadian guy. He recognizes as a kid, he doesn't have the skills, the, you know, the speed, the passing skills to make it as a pro, but he's a big kid and his coaches essentially turn him into a fighter. And he makes it to the NHL. He gets rich. He's a favorite among fans as a writer, but it just ruined his health. Uh, as Branch you know, found out in his series, Bugard really became addicted to uh, to painkillers and um, and his family said it you know it just really changed his changed his personality and now we're getting more and more information about you know just how hard a life of professional sports professional hockey especially the life of being an enforcer how hard it is on athletes physical and and mental health and you know aside from the question of, of fighting and the damage that that does or, or just the hitting in the sport, one of the problems that's come up, and this is something that that Ken Dryden addressed in a in a recent book, and other uh, observers of hockey and players themselves had acknowledged this. You know, hockey is the fastest game in the world, and but it's played on a small space by big, big athletes. They are fast, they are strong, and when they collide physics and physiology take over and you are going to have some devastating uh devastating collisions i'm an old guy i'm slow i play on the same size rink as nhl players we run into each other in the senior senior league and when we hit each other it hurts really hard (laughs) (laughs) slow guys and and it's often the case when i'm playing i'm sitting on the bench and i'm thinking wow Imagine what this would be like if everybody was 6'3", 6'5", 200 plus pounds and they can skate like lightning and they're moving around so quickly and they're crashing into each other. And so the point Dryden and others make is that the game now is so fast, the players are so big that collisions are going to happen and these collisions can be damaging for the health. And so the question is, how do we make the game more safe in the future? At present, the NHL uh, commissioner, Gary Bettman, he says, I'm satisfied. We're satisfied uh, with how the NHL is now. We're taking steps to address head injuries, to address other injuries, concussions. And uh, yeah, this is not something we need to address at the present time. Wow. Let's turn to your research for a moment. Uh, what was the most interesting thing that you found while doing your extensive research? Oh boy. Oh, I love that. Uh, the most interesting thing. Um, you know, early on in my research, I was at the archive of the university of, of Manitoba in Winnipeg. And I found the letters of a, um, player, a Canadian who had a Rhodes scholarship at Oxford and back beginning at the turn of the century down into, into the 30s, uh, Oxford had a hockey team that was made up mainly of, of Canadian and a few American Rhodes Scholar students. 
And this team would travel over to Europe. They would go on basically a barnstorming tour over winter break to Germany, Austria, and they'd usually finish up in, in Switzerland. And uh, this, this player, uh, this Rhodes Scholar, who admitted he wasn't that great of a player, he was the goalie, uh, he wrote just wonderfully descriptive accounts of this team's travels. You know, riding by train through Europe in the 1930s, going to these cities, they would get, you know, just this tremendous welcome everywhere they stopped. Uh, there would be feasts, the banquets, dancing with beautiful women. And I mean, this was early in my research, but right away I was drawn in reading word for word, page after page of, of this player's accounts of what had happened. And, and I thought in reading this, you know, this would make a terrific, it would be like, you know, Downton Abbey meets, uh, you know, meets pick your favorite hockey movie, right. And put these two (laughs) elements together and, and set the scene in, in 1930s Europe and have this team traveling, this team of Canadians traveling across, uh, across Europe. And then in the background mix in uh, one of the, characters who would come in, and this was historically the case, was Sonia Henney. She was always, she would kind of do, you could say, between period entertainments at a lot of these hockey uh, hockey games in Europe. You have people like, you know, Mary Pickford in, uh, who would be at the games and Douglas Fairbanks would be at the games. So there's this wonderful atmosphere of the, you know, the upper class of Europe uh, with these Canadian players traveling around barnstorming uh, the continent in the 1930s and playing hockey. That was just, uh, you know, it was just so fascinating to read. And then there would be all the photographs that he had saved, you know, these wonderful photographs of 1930s European cities and, and Swiss resort towns and just, you know, terrific fun. A lot of it didn't end up in the book, but it was just wonderful to read that. And what was the most surprising thing that you found in your research? The most surprising thing? Oh, that's a terrific question. Um, you know, the most surprising thing for me, I mentioned early on that I did, um, research in, in the Glenbow Institute in Calgary into the records related to Hockey Night in Canada. So this program, it started on the radio in the 1930s, went on television in 1952. Uh, it is a, you know, a Canadian institution. You know, we think of in the United States of Monday Night Football as an institution of sports programming. Hockey Night in Canada is even more so, right, in terms of, of being something that at, for a time drew Canadians across the country to their radios and then to their TVs. And what was fascinating as I looked into it is that uh, uh, it wasn't as popular as it's often billed, and it wasn't as much of a, uh, how to say, an influential cultural institution as it's often billed. Uh, I was looking into the records between the, uh, the production company and the sponsors, and a lot of their memos and letters that went back and forth was about, you know, the loss of audience, in particular, after the Summit Series in 1972, a lot of Canadian fans turned off NHL hockey. You know, after watching this series between the Soviets and the Canadians, that was a more engaging, exciting uh, form of hockey, international hockey, and and the NHL's version of the game wasn't as exciting. And so that was that was pretty interesting to look into uh, this. You could say 
the the cracks in this idea that uh, hockey night in Canada was a, a broadly popular, influential cultural institution. Well, I mean, I know your time is valuable, and we really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, do you have any other projects in the works? Yeah, I've just started doing uh, a new project. So like the the, the book on uh, the world history of hockey, this is also a world history related to sports. Um, one of the things I did in the past, as I said early on, I was, a, I was a mediocre hockey player, a mediocre athlete in general. But what I was really good at was being a referee. I, I refereed high school football and did some college football. Uh, I refereed hockey. And I was surprised to notice that there is not a history of the referee and umpires in world sports. And so uh, I've already started doing some interviews with boxing referees. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's going to be my next project. So hopefully I'll be back in a few years with the, uh, the history of the ref. <laughs> Great. Even professional wrestling refs. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking with Bruce Berglund, author of The Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalization of Sports. Bruce, thanks again for being with us. It was a fascinating interview. Thanks so much, Bob, for having me. You've been listening to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thanks again for joining us. Until next time, remember, it's the game that matters. 